Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a look at the life of Dame Anne McLaren, one of the leading embryologists of the 20th century, whose work underpinned the development of the in vitro fertilisation techniques responsible for bringing millions of bundles of joy into the world, and much more besides. Before we start, a quick plug for Ingenious, my recent five-part series on BBC Radio 4, produced by the brilliant Beth Sagar-Fenton, looking at the stories and some of the science behind five of my favourite human genes. There's the ginger gene, the breast cancer gene, the milkshake gene, the Alzheimer's gene and the cyclops gene, also known as sonic hedgehog, the best gene of all time, in my personal opinion. There's a link to the whole series on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com or just search for Cat Arnie Ingenious and you should find them. When I started my PhD at the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge, I was an ambitious and probably quite insufferable young thing straight out of university. At the other end of her scientific lifespan was Anne, more formally known as the Honourable Dame Anne Laura Dorinthia McLaren, who, even though in her 70s, was a regular and forceful presence in the lab and in our shared team meetings. Once I'd got over my arrogant assumption that this short but sprightly old lady had nothing to teach me, I became hugely respectful of her views and her thoughts. As a newly hatched scientist, I was learning my trade working with Professor Azim Sarani. My research was embryonic in both senses of the word, as I tried to understand some of the earliest events that happen when life begins. Hour after hour, I stared in fascination and frustration down a microscope watching perfectly spherical mouse eggs quietly split in half again and again to create tiny footballs of cells. These ghostly, transparent embryos remain the most beautiful living things I have ever seen. And in Anne, I met someone else who was utterly enchanted by the glory of life at its earliest, most fragile stages. Anne's curiosity about early development was the fire that fuelled a lifetime of research. And although she never boasted about it, her groundbreaking work in the 1950s laid the foundations for in vitro fertilisation or IVF babies, cloning and genetically engineered mice. These are technologies that have revolutionised human reproduction and biomedical research. Not bad for someone who had an unconventional early education and grew up during a time when science was most definitely not a girl thing. Anne chose to study zoology at Oxford University almost by accident. Apparently she picked the course because cramming for the biology entrance exam seemed like an easier option than doing the required reading for English literature. Her first taste of research came at University College London under the auspices of JBS or Jack Haldane, the renowned neo-Darwinist science populariser and Marxist, who was also the first person to propose, as far back as 1923, a renewable hydrogen-based economy. He must have been one hell of an interesting boss, suiting Anne's inquiring mind and political leanings, more of which later. 
Following that, she headed back to Oxford for a first attempt at a PhD, vaccinating pregnant rabbits against different proteins to see if this affected the development of their foetuses. Unfortunately, something about the animal house in Oxford managed to dampen even the legendary ardour of rabbits, and Anne didn't get enough pregnant animals to work with. This left her with just two years to complete a PhD, so she swapped rabbits for a much more efficiently reproducing system – viruses. In the 1950s, polio was one of the hottest topics of medical research, with plenty of money being thrown at it. Anne switched to working with respected virologist Professor Kingsley Sanders on neurotropic viruses, which include the polio virus. However, she only published a handful of papers on viral infection, although one was quite a significant finding, as she quickly got sidetracked, both academically and personally, by Donald Mitchie, who'd worked as a codebreaker at Bletchley Park during the war. Although he later became a major force in computing research, at this time he was pursuing his childhood hobby of mouse breeding on a more scientific footing. As well as falling in love, Anne was developing her lifelong interest in understanding how to get from one generation to the next, as she liked to describe it. She wanted to know whether babies were solely a product of the combined genes of their parents, and, by implication, all the generations that have gone before, or whether the environment, both inside and outside the womb, played a role too. In order to find out, she had to develop the mind-bendingly fiddly techniques that are the mainstay of mammalian embryology even today. The first forays into this world of technical pain had been made by US researchers a decade before, but on a smaller and less successful scale. Working together with Donald at UCL, Anne injected female mice from one particular genetic strain with hormones that made them ovulate a large number of eggs on cue, then set them up for a romantic night with some lusty males from the same genetic background. After a couple of days, she retrieved the embryos, by this point little balls of cells floating within the mother's reproductive tubing, and implanted them into the wombs of mice from a different strain. Surely, she figured, if it's all about the genes, then the baby mice should come out exactly like their true genetic parents. Yet, this wasn't quite the case, and the offspring did have some certain characteristics that looked more like their surrogate mother. So it turns out that the womb certainly does have a view when it comes to making babies. As part of this work, Anne perfected a number of important embryology techniques. This included finding the correct sequence of hormone injections to persuade female mice to produce an excessive number of eggs, known as superovulation, and the best way to transfer embryos to and from the animal's reproductive plumbing. Today, these techniques are the bedrock of transgenic mouse technology, enabling researchers everywhere to genetically engineer mice to answer all manner of scientific questions in areas of fundamental biology and in diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's. Although our labs at the Gurdon Institute spent most of the time steeped in the language of reproduction, human babies, rather than mouse ones, and married life were far from my mind at such an early point in my career. In contrast, Anne married Donald in 1952, the same year she finished her PhD, publishing several important research papers together with him during the 1950s. 
By the end of the decade, she had amassed three small children and a divorce, while still keeping things going in the lab. I find this quite staggering when you consider that it was all in the days before women's lib really got going. The success of these embryo transfer experiments spurred Anne on to a more ambitious project. In the studies I've just described, embryos were moved straight from one mouse to another. But could such fragile forms survive and grow outside the womb? In 1958, Anne teamed up with John Biggers to carry out an experiment in mice that set the scene for the later success of IVF in humans. Together, they took fertilised eggs from a mouse's fallopian tubes at the stage where they were just one or two cells and plopped them into tiny dishes containing nutrient-rich liquid. In this artificial simulacrum of a womb, the cells began to grow and divide. They split once, twice, again and again, over and over, and after a few days had created the little ball of cells that scientists call a blastocyst. But that was only the first bit. Next, Anne and John had to prove that these lab-grown cellular footballs could actually develop and live. They transferred the blastocysts back into the wombs of surrogate female mice, a finicky job that requires steady hands and a lot of staring down a microscope. And they were thrilled to get live mouse pups out the other end a few weeks later. It's hard to underestimate the importance of this study, first published in Nature and now more than 50 years old, in the light of the 5 million or so bouncing human test tube babies that have come into the world since the first one, Louise Brown, was born in 1978. At the same time when she was busy making mouse babies inside the lab and human ones outside it, Anne quickly realised that her work would probably be applied to women at some point in the future. Even with the much more restrained media of the late 1950s, Anne and John's work hit the headlines, garnering both praise and controversy as news of these brave new mice spread. As a result, she knew it was crucial that this new world of reproductive technology should be communicated fairly and accurately to the public. Some of the concern was related to confusion around the legal technicalities of sperm donation, which have since been ironed out. If a baby was created from donor sperm, then the woman's husband's name couldn't be put on the birth certificate. But putting the donor's name on would make the child illegitimate, an unacceptable fate at the time. This unholy hybridisation of research, reproduction and ethics led to Anne getting involved in meetings and discussions around the new technology. By the 1980s, her interest culminated in joining Baroness Mary Warnock's eponymous committee, which drew up the first guidelines covering the use of in vitro fertilised donated eggs and gave rise to the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority in 1990. Her interest in developmental biology well and truly stoked, Anne moved up to the Institute of Animal Genetics in Edinburgh. Now known as the Roslin Institute, it was made famous as the birthplace of Dolly the Sheep, the first cloned mammal. While establishing herself as an independent scientist, Anne published many detailed and beautiful studies on mouse reproduction. These ranged from trying to figure out whether there was any rhyme or reason as to how many pups grew in each side of a mouse's two-tubed womb, 
the answer, maybe, through to the effects of removing one ovary. A number of these studies were carried out with Patricia Bowman, including important work on chimeras. Rather than being the snake-lion-goat hybrid creature of mythology, these chimeras are created by sticking together two embryos from genetically different mouse strains when they ate cells each, then implanting them back into surrogate mothers. Another important focus of Anne's work through the 60s and 70s was immunocontraception, the idea of using a vaccine to trick the immune system into rejecting either sperm or fertilised embryos. Although this approach isn't really feasible for use in humans, mostly due to the effectiveness and simplicity of the currently available methods, contraceptive vaccines are used widely today for controlling animal populations, both in the wild and in captivity. Anne moved back to London in 1974 when she was appointed head of the Medical Research Council's Mammalian Development Unit. Through the late 70s and 80s, her work yet again helped to underpin a major shift forward. This time, her research helped lead to the discovery of the so-called male gene, SRY, which tells a developing embryo to divert from the female pattern that we all start out with and take the path of maleness instead. For many years, it was thought that a mysterious factor called the HY antigen, produced by male embryos, was responsible for determining their sex. But although HY was an attractive idea, there was very little hard evidence at the time to support its actual existence. In 1984, Anne and Liz Simpson published a paper in Nature describing indisputably male mice that lacked HY. These little squeakers blew the idea that HY was the elusive maleness factor completely out of the water. Anne also worked with Marilyn Monk on sex-reversed mice, which are genetically female, i.e. they carry two X chromosomes, but appear, to all intents and purposes, to be male. After a couple more years of detailed genetic detective work, Anne and Liz did indeed track down the location of this HY on the Y chromosome. But Peter Goodfellow and Robin Lovell Badge did claim the big game, hunting down the true determinant of maleness, the SRY gene, in 1990. Perhaps one of the more overlooked aspects of Anne's work, and something researchers today would do well to rediscover, was some of the research she carried out with Donald back in their early days in the 1950s, looking at how different genetic strains of mice responded to the barbiturate drug Nembutal. While it's an amusing mental picture to wonder what a mouse high on drugs looks like, Anne had a more serious purpose in mind. Anne discovered that highly inbred or pedigree mice had a much more variable response to Nembutal than animals that were bred by crossing two purebred strains, or those with an even more mixed heritage. As Anne and Donald took pains to point out at the time, this variability had big implications for the growing number of researchers that were using mice to test various drugs and other compounds. Inbred mice are easy and cheap to produce. You just stick a male mouse in the cage together with a bunch of females from the same strain and let nature take its course, while producing more complex genetic mixtures takes time and effort. But these contrary results showed that the assumption of uniformity, at least on a genetic level, isn't always best if you want to get results that might be applicable to more genetically complex species. 
maybe like humans. Their findings still resonate today as answers to the question of how our genes influence the way we respond to the world around us are still waiting to be found. In her later work, Anne became obsessed with what she used to call the most fascinating and deeply mysterious cells of all. These are the germ cells that will become eggs and sperm in an adult. The cells that go on to form the germline and are used to create the next generation are chosen just a few days after fertilisation and must be protected from any kind of damage or interference from the developmental tumult going on around them. Once formed, these precious genetic time capsules begin to crawl through the embryo, migrating into the tiny blobs of tissue that will eventually become ovaries or testicles. At the time that Anne got interested in germ cells, there was no way of identifying them with any kind of molecular label. In fact, there was very little known about them at all. She developed a technique for staining germ cells with a red dye, a significant step forward in tracking down their elusive location within the developing embryo. She then devoted the rest of her research career to pinning down the characteristics of these unique cells, trying to understand where they came from, where they were going, and what made them so special. Anne's record outside the lab is almost as prolific as her scientific output. She was the first woman to serve as an officer of the prestigious, not to mention male-dominated Royal Society in its 300-plus years of history, taking on the job of Foreign Secretary from 1991 to 1996. This role in particular revealed one of her more unusual talents, the ability to evade jet lag. Travelling economy class everywhere, with just a small rucksack and a plastic bag of scientific papers, Anne would happily trundle off a transatlantic flight straight into an academic conference and be the first into the bar afterwards. She wasn't totally superhuman, though, and apparently described herself as not very good with people in the morning. As well as the Royal Society and the Warnock Committee, Anne was involved in a number of other public committees and organisations, both in the UK and on an international level. Many of these were focused on challenging ethical issues surrounding reproductive technology. She frequently wrote thoughtful and rigorously evidenced articles on topics including IVF and prenatal diagnosis, as well as cloning and stem cell research. Later in life, she developed an interest in conservation, and in 1996 she helped to set up the Frozen Ark project, aiming to freeze cells from a huge range of species before extinction claims them. The hope is that in due course, cloning technology will have developed to the extent that extinct species can be resurrected from these tiny frozen nuggets of life. Another thing that often comes up when people talk about Anne is her political beliefs. She was born into a wealthy, aristocratic family. Her dad was Lord Aberconway, the Liberal MP. But they were far from being toffs. Much of the family's money came from industry, and they were known for their liberal politics and support of the suffragist movement. Scientists are generally a, a left-leaning kind of bunch, but it's probably fair to say that Anne was certainly a bit of a raging lefty, even by these standards. She was a member of the Communist Party in her early days, which made visiting the US for conferences a bit tricky 
and she had a strong sense of social responsibility and social justice. It's clear from all her interactions that she wanted to make the world a better, fairer place. As a working single mother, Anne was very keen on pushing for better childcare for the offspring of young researchers, whether working in the lab or at scientific conferences. She firmly believed that a lack of affordable, convenient and reliable childcare was a key factor in making it difficult for women to reach the top in science. I remember staff at the Gurdon Institute repeatedly begging the management for some kind of crash facility, and as far as I know, they still don't have one. There was also much grimacing when the university sent round a survey to all the female researchers, asking us what one thing would help us in our careers. At least one embittered postdoc ironically wrote, a wife on the dotted line. But Anne also lived by her principles in the way that she ran her lab and would often berate the researchers with young families, telling them to go home and spend time with the kids. And that went for the men as well as the women. Thanks to her prolific research career and numerous extracurricular commitments, Anne had little time for interests outside the scientific world. The exception seems to have been her own children and later grandchildren. It's unknown whether she had any other partners after her divorce, but it's hard to see how she would have found the time. Donald remarried, but they did remain on good terms and reconnected later in life, living again as a couple after his second wife died. When I worked with Anne at the Gurdon Institute, she was already in her 70s, yet had more energy and enthusiasm for research than many of us PhD students. While on paper she should have retired in 1992, it was impossible to imagine how her scientific light might be dimmed. When I sat down with my PhD supervisor, Azim, to research this piece, he described the last time he saw Anne. They were discussing a newly published paper that appeared to have some interesting implications for their overlapping interest in stem cells. Anne promised to chat about it over coffee with him on Monday morning. Their meeting never happened. On Sunday the 8th of July 2007, Anne and Donald died together in a car accident on the M11 motorway. They'd been driving from a wedding in Cambridge back to their home in London. The academic spheres of biology and computing reverberated the devastating news. Both of them were still active in the scientific community, despite being in their 80s, and were much loved by colleagues, family and friends. While most of the media coverage rightfully mourned the loss of two great and still vigorous minds, nil points to the Daily Mail for their rather one-sided headline, wartime codebreaker dies in motorway crash. Anne left behind an incredible legacy. Part of it is hard-coded in the hundreds of research papers and articles that she wrote, including two highly respected books that helped to define the field, Mammalian Chimeras and Germ Cells and Soma. There's also the numerous awards, including the Royal Society's Royal Medal, the prestigious Japan Prize for Developmental Biology, and of course, her damehood. But just as important is the softer stuff, the influence she had on others, and the scientific lives she helped to shape. 
Anne headed the Mammalian Development Unit in London for many years, and a significant proportion of the UK's developmental biologists passed under her command at some point. She had a fiendishly sharp mind, and a reputation for being very direct. She detested what she called sloppy thinking. This could seem terrifying to the uninitiated, but she really was very warm when you got to know her, and she certainly did chill out a bit as she got older. It's only fitting that a fund to provide fellowships for young female scientists has been set up in her memory to enable them to kickstart an independent career. For many years, Anne also taught on the Cold Spring Harbour Experimental Embryology of the Mouse course, helping cack-handed learners get to grips with the finer points of the animal's internal organs. Having benefited from her patient teaching myself, I can only hope that these students appreciated the opportunity they had to learn from someone who had complete mastery of her craft. When it came to embryo work, Anne actually preferred to use her old 1950s dissecting microscope, now sitting under Azim's desk in the Gurdon Institute, claiming that it had far superior optics to any modern scope. It's a distinguishing feature of Anne's scientific papers that the references she cites are often drawn from many years ago. It's rare to find someone whose research career spans five decades, and her thoughtful writing brings an incredible historical perspective that can be all too easily forgotten by thrusting young scientists seduced by the latest whizzy technology. Many of the questions that intrigued Anne over the years, about the nature of inheritance and the influence of the environment on the developing foetus, still remain today and still await answers. She was always convinced that when it comes to science, it's the idea that's important. Advances in technology just help each generation get closer to an answer, but they aren't the end in themselves. Her struggles to perfect the fiddly mechanics of micro-manipulation in the 1950s were a means to an end, to understand the interplay between an embryo's genes and its home. Five decades later, this is still a hot topic in research, although we are getting closer to some answers. Anne was thrilled that the genetic revolution meant that she could finally put names to faces for the mysterious molecular factors at work in development. It is a great shame that she didn't live to see some of the more recent breakthroughs in understanding the genes and the proteins responsible for shaping the identity of those beloved, fascinating germ cells. Although much has been made over the years of the challenges of being a woman in science, Anne considered herself to be lucky in this respect, and never felt particularly disadvantaged by her sex. The concept of women scientists as a political entity felt strange to her. In most places she worked since the 1950s, she felt that there were plenty of women, and they just viewed themselves as scientists. But she did concede that holding up positive female role models for up-and-coming researchers might help them to get a foothold in an increasingly competitive world. But while Anne was exceptional, she was by no means an exception being a woman in the field of developmental biology. She's just one of a pantheon of high-profile women who've made important breakthroughs in revealing the complex molecular ballet that turns a single fertilised egg cell into a living, breathing creature. 
Rosa Beddington, Marilyn Monk, Liz Robertson, Bridget Hogan and Janet Rossant are mammalian embryologists who would all be worthy of their own story, as would those who excelled at non-mammalian systems like Hilda Mangold and Janni Nusslein-Volhardt. And we've previously covered Mary Lyon, who discovered X inactivation in mammalian embryos back in episode 12, The Strands of Life. I'm not sure whether it's accident or design that brings women to study the mechanics of making babies, but there's no doubt that these pioneers have acted as powerful role models for the next generation. Anne herself occasionally complained about the old boys network, which she felt sometimes led to men only putting forward male friends for jobs. But in a 2004 interview, she did note wryly that there seemed to be an old women's network developing at least in her field, which was helping to even up the balance. As Anne herself wrote in an eloquent review paper on genetic inheritance, history may be circular, but the history of science is helical. It repeats itself, but each time at a deeper level. Rather than the Newtonian idea of standing on the shoulders of giants, I like to think of scientists ourselves as forming a twisted helix through time, intertwining as we pass on skills, knowledge and friendship to those who come up behind us. Anne McLaren's influence on the world of reproductive science and medicine corkscrews deeply back in time, and I am honoured to have been a tiny link in her chain. Her legacy will stretch for years to come in the lives of those she knew, those who knew her work, and the many, many more who benefit from it. This story was first published in the book A Passion for Science, Stories of Discovery and Invention, which is packed with 20 tales about amazing women in science, and it's available to download as an e-book for just $1.99. Just follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. Thanks very much to Sue Sharman Anderson, the founder of Ada Lovelace Day and the Finding Ada Network, who commissioned me to write about Anne for the book, and to my old boss Azim Sarani for the coffee and the conversation about Anne's life and work. That's all for now. Next time we'll be heading out into the real world, from the safety of our home studio of course, to find out what goes on on a genetics field trip, with the help of some charming kakapos. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayall, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.